Well, amen. Thank you, friends. Good morning. It is wonderful to share space with you, whether you are in person or online. We are so grateful to get to spend time with you today. My name is Tracy Bianchi, and over the years, I've been a pastor here and a preacher, and currently, my Christchurch resume has me a seventh grade small group herd leader. So let's give it up for seventh grade girls. <laughs> and it is my joy to be uh, back this morning and engaging in God's word with you. If you are not kind of uh, sure where we're at and what our sermon series is about right now, let me remind you we are in a two-week series simply titled Altered, a conversation around whether or not our lives actually are altered by the resurrection. Now, I'm sure most of us would give a resounding yes to that. If we are in church, we would say, of course, that's why we preach, that's why we do this thing. But then the follow-up question is, well, how is it then that we so often walk around feeling unchanged or wondering why the broken world that we share isn't quite altered in a way that seems to honor God or work the way a resurrected Lord might want. So this is the conversation that we're going to have today. I'm going to pray for us, and then after I do, I invite you to find a copy of your scriptures and turn to John chapter 21. But before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to catch our breath, sing some holy words, offer up prayers, and wonder together about your love, your magnificence, your awe-inspiring creation. Lord, thank you for the gift of your grace and love, for your presence with us. And may we know more of you because we dared to engage with your word and wonder together what it means. In the name of Jesus, wherever God's people are, they say together now, amen. Well, in our passage for today, we will find some answers to this altered question that we have. And it's important to understand the context before we dive into John chapter 21. The disciples have just spent the excruciating Holy Week where they watched their beloved friend torn literally apart by an angry mob and murdered. They've watched that happen. They've gone through the trauma and the chaos and the grief of that. They've started now a few days later to endeavor to try to make sense of his death and maybe put some of those pieces of the tragedy in their places and maybe begin to move forward. And then all of a sudden, a new cascade of chaos comes. This is this sort of tender and tragic time because all of a sudden the women are at the tomb and they come running into the grief and say, he's risen. And now they have to reorder and reorient what this means. Of course there was joy and celebration. We, however, sit 2,000 years after this event and we've had 2,000 years of church history and of Bible college and seminaries and commentaries and books and Bible studies to try to figure out what the resurrection meant. 
The guys in our story today, the fishermen we are going to talk about, this just happened. They did not immediately know how to make sense of this. Is it true? You know, Thomas was like, I'm not going to buy it until I can plunge my fingers into his wounds. What does it mean? How long will he be here? Do I dare hope again? Because three days earlier, my hopes were dashed. So this is the, the tender space we find ourselves in with the disciples today. There's an author named Mary Carr who wrote her own memoir titled Lit. And in it, she captures this sort of space that we're in today. She says, if you live in the dark and the sun comes out, you do not cross into it whistling. There's a, there is an initial uprush of relief at first, then a profound dislocation. My old assumptions about how the world works are buried, yet my new ones are not yet operational. This is the space we are in today. Some people call this liminal space today. There's lots of conversations about the transformation that takes place in these moments. So we're at the sea now of Galilee, and in all of this space and this unknowing, Jesus, his tribe of friends, decide it's time to go home. They are returning to the fishing nets they abandoned just a few years earlier when they left on this amazing adventure. And we might be able to identify with this when a tragedy or a seismic event occurs in our lives, we respond and we go to the wake or the funeral or we reorganize based on whatever chaos has happened, a natural disaster, a tragedy of some sort. We lament, we ache, we grieve, we hopefully gather in community. We try to absorb as much as what has happened into our hearts and our souls, but eventually one day we wake up and numb as we'll ever be, we don't get over it, but we get on with the business of living. We drag ourselves back to school, back to work, whatever it may be. We try to make sense of what has just happened. So this is that day for Peter and for some of the disciples. Scripture says afterward, after Jesus had appeared a few times, after this sort of space was created, Jesus appears again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So seven guys. Peter says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They're going back to work. What else do we do? This was not a recreational fishing trip. This is not the end of a week on a Friday afternoon. Let's saunter down to the pier, a couple, throw a couple lines in the water, enjoy the sunset. This is Simon Peter's way of saying, I'm moving on, perhaps. 
Now the disciples were commercial fishermen. It is important to know that. If you know anything about commercial fishermen today, you will know this is a grueling profession. Our family loves to binge on fishing shows like The Deadliest Catch or Wicked Tuna. We know the names of all the boats. We know Tyler and Marciano, and we watch the drama unfold together as these roughneck crews fight for the catch and sometimes fight one another. It makes great TV, of course, but fishing has always been a grueling profession. Peter and the disciples are the first century version of this, only without big ships and a coast guard, electronics, high-end gear, and of course, camera crews from National Geographic or the Discovery Channel. Jesus loved these guys. Jesus absolutely loved spending time with fishermen. I am not being dramatic or hyperbolic when I say this. If you trace the stories of Jesus through scripture, he liked to be around fishermen. Many of the gospel stories take place around them. They were not among the high society types. They were grinders. They had dirt under their nails, a litany of good stories. They were probably fun to drink with after work. I don't know. They fished at night. And then they spent their days mending nets and boats and hustling in the marketplace to sell the fish they had caught. During the first century, they probably, at this place in the world on the Sea of Galilee, caught tilapia and carp and catfish. They did not have running water or deodorant, so they probably reeked a constant stench to be around these guys. Jesus feeds the 5,000, if you know that story, with loaves and with fishes that were caught by fishermen. He calls the disciples from the career of fishing to follow him. In scripture, over and over again, he preaches and makes his way through seaside villages like Capernaum and Bethsaida. Bethsaida literally means house of fish. And while we know that Jesus was not a fisherman, he moved around with them. There are stories of him preaching from the bow of their boats. There are stories of Jesus calming storms and Peter walking on water right out of a fishing boat. This is where he spent a lot of his time. Now, fishermen will tell you that much like life itself, fishing is a game of outrunning disappointment. You kind of toss your dreams, your hope, your aspirations, your expectations into a net, and one of two things will happen. Those dreams will catch, or the sheer weight of everything that matters can also drift down into the fathomless ocean and come back empty. So after trauma and tragedy, why not go home to your nets? Toss them out again into the inky black water. See if anything comes back. Scripture goes on to say that early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus, and he called out to them, friends, 
haven't you any fish? Now, they had been out all night. They fished at night because during the day, the fish could see the nets, and this is long before nylon fishing nets. So they had been out all night, and the sun has just come up, and they are exhausted, and they do not know it is Jesus. So what an annoying question by some stranger on the shore when you have worked all night long, caught nothing, and some bright-eyed chipper guy on the shore wants to know if you've caught anything. It was probably obvious. The boat was probably not lurching as if it was full. There was no joy whatsoever on the faces of the disciples. Their nets were flat, their faces were flat. Hey guys, did you catch anything? Now I do not fish at all but my entire family does. And I can tell you there is probably nothing more irritating to them when they come back from a busted run out fishing and I'm on the pier at my dad's lake house going, you guys catch anything? (laughs) And it's like, no, no, mom, mom, no, don't try so hard. We've caught nothing. Or if they caught something, of course, they're going to trip over each other to tell the stories of the size and the fish and whatever it was they caught. But they don't know this is Jesus, and they're not going to entertain him with any details. No, they answered. (laughs) But this guy keeps, he's walking the shore, keeping pace with the boat. And then he says, hey, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Okay, first of all, Do you really think these guys wanted to hear that? I'm gonna say, at the risk of adding words to scripture, which I do not want to do, I wonder if there were more words exchanged here. Let's just be honest. Who do you think you are? Okay, let's throw our nuts on the other side, you know. They don't know him, they've not seen him in boats, they've not seen him in the fishing market, they don't know it's Jesus. Who is this guy telling us what to do? My guess? And we'll know one day in heaven we can ask the Lord himself. My guess is they threw those nets back out just to show this guy he was wrong. They're a few feet from shore at this point. Probably not going to catch much, but as God does, he surprises us, right? When they did this, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then... The disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, said to Peter, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Peter cannot react fast enough. He's stripped down to the basics because he's just had to row this boat all the way back to shore. So he's probably sweaty and exhausted. So he grabs his outer clothing and he wraps it around himself, which doesn't make a ton of sense because then he jumps into the water because he cannot get to Jesus fast enough. And I feel like Peter's a little impulsive and dangerous around water. I mean, at the Last Supper... 
before Jesus is betrayed, he gathers his disciples together and he's going through the tender act of washing their feet on Maundy Thursday, as we call it now. And Jesus comes to Peter and he washes Peter's feet and Peter's like, no, Lord, my whole body too. And they have this whole exchange and Peter just, he cannot experience enough of Jesus. And he misses the point half the time. And then later in the Gospels, he's the one that jumps out of the boat and follows Jesus and is walking on water. And then they have this dialogue and Peter sinks. And Peter's that friend that has you raking your hands through your hair. You're like, ah, pull yourself together, man. Maybe you have a lot of Peter in you. Some of us have a lot of Peter in us. I was an impulsive and brash Child, I like to think I've outgrown this a bit, I'm afraid to ask, but my family would probably tell you that's not the case. My parents tell stories about how we would be on our way to events and my dad would drive the car through the parking lot and get ready to park the car and I was already opening the door as a child and jumping out of a moving car because I couldn't get to whatever we were doing fast enough. I blurt out my first thought, I engage immediately with people without thinking, It can be exhausting to have a friend like Peter. Some of us are Peters. Some of us might be more like John, who is wonderfully called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John figures it out. John does not need to jump in the water. John is in the boat. He's like, oh, okay, let's put the pieces together. Let's think rationally and logically here. That's the Lord. John is more metered and thoughtful, and he sorts it out, and John knows what it's like to have a Peter in his life, and Peter knows what it's like to have a John, and you can see in these moments the personalities of the disciples coming out. And so they're in the boat, and it says the other disciples followed followed in the boat. So Peter's in the water, Jesus is on the shore, John's like, it's him, and the other disciples are left rowing the boat. Peter probably left an abandoned oar. It's probably flopping back and forth. They're towing the net of fish, for they were not far from shore. Scripture says about 100 yards. Peter couldn't wait 100 yards before he jumped in the water. And when they landed, they saw fire burning. There was fish on the fire. There was some bread. Does this sound familiar? And Jesus says to them, bring back some of the fish that you have just caught So Simon Peter climbs back into the boat and drags the net ashore. He helps the effort there. It was so large and full of fish, 153 fish. And you know, scholars for centuries have tried to figure out if there's some significance in the number 153. No, there were 153 fish. It's a big catch. And so they drag it to shore But even with so many fish, scripture says, the net was not torn. Then Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So we have now the sound of a wooden bottomed boat being dragged across the gravel on the shore, the wet flopping and gasping of fish in nets. Peter left his friends to do the work. Notice here how deftly Jesus sends Peter back to help the guys. He says, why don't you go get some of those fish? Oh, right, 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 Jesus. Okay, I'm on it. I'm going to go back and figure this out. And Peter climbs back into the boat. And then there's this moment where we catch our breath in the narrative. 
none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time in this new space they're in that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then, at breakfast, Jesus engages specifically with soaking wet Peter. Now, if we think back to the Holy Week narrative that we are less than three weeks now removed from, so fresh on the minds and hearts, perhaps, of the disciples at this time would have been what happened between Peter and Jesus about a week earlier. In Matthew 26, when Jesus had gathered his disciples together for a meal on the night he was betrayed, the last supper, Jesus tells them, you are going to desert and betray me, all of you. And Peter's the one impulsively again that jumps up and says, not I, Lord, not I. I will never do that to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter hard and sharp publicly in front of his friends. You fool. Even you will betray me three times before the rooster crows, which Peter did. Also, interestingly, around a charcoal fire when someone noticed him and said, I think that guy was with Jesus. And Peter, I don't know him. I've never met him before. Not me. Three times he does this. So keep that in mind because Peter's moment, Peter's world is forever altered in this moment. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, okay, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. Peter does not get what Jesus is doing here. Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter is hurt exasperated and hurt. Why do you keep asking me, do I love you? I love you, Lord, three times. Three times Jesus denies Peter, and three times Jesus works at moving the barriers away and restoring Peter to his fullness. Jesus restores him to the blank slate of creativity, generosity, energy, love, and action that Peter was created to be. And in this moment, 
Peter finally takes it in, publicly restored in front of his friends. And Peter is charged with starting the church in this moment. Take care of people. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And if you read the rest of the New Testament or study church history, you will know that Peter goes on from this moment and becomes the head of the church the church that we've inherited parts of throughout the world and throughout denominations today. Peter becomes the leader then of the disciples. Peter preaches and Peter moves about the ancient Near East like Jesus did and Peter befriends people and scoops them up off the ground and loves them and heals them and performs signs and miracles and Peter is chased later out of towns because he has started a movement that cannot be stopped. And at the end of his life, Peter is crucified upside down because of his devotion to Jesus and his love for the church, which is a far cry from the guy who looked down and wouldn't even admit he knew Jesus just a short time earlier. Peter's life is forever altered because of his encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He both received the love that God gave and he acted then on the command that he had received. So what does this mean for us today? How do we find our altered selves in this story? What is it that we have in common with Peter, perhaps, other than impulsivity or bad decision-making at times? Jesus will alter your life in this story first if you receive his love. Remember if you are feeling unloved, unseen, unknown, that one day your net will fill. Some of us just churn through the days of our lives and we are unknown and everybody else seems to get the big break, everybody else seems to get the phone call or whatever it is that we would love to receive. And perhaps the simple life-altering message for you today is that Jesus sees you and loves you. And you may be slumped over in your boat staring at what appears to be an empty net. And you have cast that thing out so many times, trying to catch something in this life, and it just keeps coming back empty. And the fog might be so thick that you don't even see it's Jesus on the shore. But you are never alone. And Jesus is there through the thick of your grief, your anger, your frustration, your lament, whatever it is you face, Jesus is there. And he is eager to restore you and to have the dialogue with him that you need to have, just like he dialogued with Peter, ending with, I love you. Do you know, do you know that I love you? And some of you need to hear Jesus ask you that question. And the answer is yes, yes. And every day we can move closer to a full awareness of that reality. But if you are there today in that place, know that God is there and God loves you. 
The flip side of this is that some of us need to alter our lives by acting on that love. Some of you have pulled your boat up to shore and you've jumped out and you have stood with Jesus and you were like, yes, I know. I know you love me. Thank you. Thank you. You love me. Notice that Jesus does not stop there. He doesn't say, cool, glad you know, have a great day. Doesn't stop that way. Jesus says to Peter, if you know I love you, then do something. Do something. Feed my sheep. If you know I love you, act on it. Do good. Do my good for people, for the world, for the people that I love as much as I love you. Do you know how to tell if the love of Jesus has changed your life? People whose lives are changed by the love of Jesus eventually do something about that love. They act on it. Love is an action. To feed my sheep is to act on behalf of the angry, the dispirited, the riotous, the arrogant, the neglected, the abused, the overlooked, the irritating, the lost, the dramatic. It is to act on behalf of people who are fragile, weary, hungry, despised, rejected, under-resourced, under-privileged, under-educated, under underemployed, once everyone else has given up, that is when we continue to show up. Everyone who is loathed, who we might look at and think they deserve what they got, we begin the work there. Because Jesus says, take care of them, befriend them, sit with them, be present to them, extend the hand of love in my direction. Do you know I love you? Yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. And he Wright says, the resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven as if comfort is the final choice, but to fill earth with the life of heaven. This is the goal. Whenever I encounter a moment of awe, like Peter did, I find that the shine wears off for me. I don't often find myself transformed the way Peter is. When I have gone in the past to say, the Art Institute of Chicago. I remember seeing exhibits there and um, when that used to be a thing that people did. <laughs> and I remember I would leave and I'd be like, oh, I'm so inspired. I'm gonna go study art. I wanna read about you know, impressionism and all this. Maybe I should take a watercolor class. I'm gonna figure out art. And then you know, that wears off like a couple hours later, you know, maybe all of that spent in traffic on the Eisenhower. And then we get home and something more pressing is before us to tend to, I think for a lot of us, the idea of Jesus loving us is fun for a moment. We come in and out of awe, 
in our lives, we might come to church and we sing a song or we read a prayer or we hear a sermon, maybe we sign up for the class, maybe a scripture moves us and we're committed, we are all in. We're like, this is the time I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out. We're motivated by the awe of moments and spaces and places, perhaps like this. But then like life happens and we wonder why a couple weeks, months, years later, we're still dragging empty nets across the beach. So may we remember well the story of Peter and how in moments of awe, he allowed his life to be altered and remain as such. The poet Rilke puts it this way, let everything happen to you. Just like Peter, right? Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Let all happen to you. And then he says, just keep going. No feeling is final. Do not let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. Or as the Apostle Paul says, forget what lies behind. Jesus has restored you three times, three times, three times, three million times. Keep pressing on toward the goal of knowing Jesus. Let the resurrection alter you. Let love wash over you. Let it soak into you. And let it help raise your nets. And when then we stand before God, soaking wet with our impulsive souls, May we take the love then we receive and unleash it upon the world. Act ridiculously generous to people who don't deserve it. Extend kindness to complete strangers. Invite your enemies over for dinner. Hold your tongue, but release your heart and help people pull up their nets and fill them with glorious, soul-empowering things to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, that's a story. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for putting these fishermen in your scripture. Thank you for giving us the eyes and the ears and the heart over 2,000 years later to sit here and wonder about it together. Lord, may we do more than just receive it. May it shape us. May it comfort us and soothe us. May it give rest to those of us who just needed that part of it today. And when we feel restored and when we feel strong enough and ready, May we then act, God, on that goodness. May we extend the love that we receive to a weary, exhausted, burdened, and tired world who so desperately needs us to fish with them. In the mighty name of Jesus, all of the people of God said together, amen.